Blog Talk Radio. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo. GOAT, G O A T, acronym, stands for Greatest of All Time, as in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Also, you can email me. I would love to hear from you. My email address is SaturdaysWithJoyKeys at Hotmail.com. I just, again, want to thank you guys for all your support, listening, and sharing the shows. I hope you have enjoyed them, and I hope your friends and family have enjoyed them as well. This morning, while we'll be speaking about an icon, but through a very interesting voice, um, the person is a writer, a speaker, a professor. Um, she's written popular children's history books. Um, and she has written articles for Essence, Refinery29, Pro, Teen Vogue, Glamour, People, and the North Star. So this morning we're going to be speaking with Michelle Duster. Good morning. Good morning, Joe. How are you? I am well. I'm not COVID-free. Let's put it that way. Knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going for you? You're um, central time, yes? Yes, I'm in central, I'm central time in Chicago. So you wrote this book, Ida Be the Queen. Let's just talk, talk from the beginning. What is your connection? Tell the audience with Ida B. Wells. Ida B. Wells uh, was my great-grandmother. She was my grandmother's mother on my father's side of the family. And did you ever meet or see pictures of her in your home when you were growing up? Well, yes. I mean, Ida B. Wells died 32 years before I was born, so I never met her, and neither did my father. Mm-hmm. Um, but my grandmother was her youngest daughter, and I knew my grandmother very well. Um, I spent a lot of time with her when I was growing up. And she did talk about her mother, um, but she um, she didn't talk about her at length, and she didn't talk about her the, in detail as far as the amount of danger that she faced um, and the amount of violence that she encountered. Do you remember when you found out about her, I guess, prolific, if you will, um, fights against lynching and and different racial injustices? Do you remember when you first found out about that? No, not not the exact date. I mean, I I just knew all all my whole life. I I knew that my great-grandmother was a journalist, a civil rights activist. I knew she was involved in the suffrage movement. Um, I knew that she was one of the co-founders of the NAACP, but later on in my life, I learned more about the work that she did as a suffragist and, um, and what she did in Chicago regarding the Negro Fellowship League. Um, so I learned about her in, in bits and pieces over the course of my life because um, her life was very full. And, um, you know, and so there were certain things that I just knew more details about. She, what I found interesting, and it just blew my mind, was how young she was um, when she started on this, this road. Um, when she was younger, she had to take care of all of her siblings. 
can you tell us, uh, tell the audience, I, I mean, I know what happened, but can you tell the audience why she ended up taking care of her siblings uh, when she was like 16, 16 years old? Right. Well, I think it's important for people to remember my great-grandmother was born in 1862. She was born enslaved in Holly Springs, Mississippi, and she grew up during Reconstruction um, as the oldest of eight children. And unfortunately, her both of her parents died when she was 16 years old. They died within a day of each other from the yellow fever epidemic. And so because she was educated um, and there was a need, a, a strong need for teachers in rural areas, um, she was able to take an exam and, and uh, become a teacher in order to take care of her five younger surviving siblings. Now, she had a gossip was being spread about her because she went to go visit a particular man. Can you tell them about what happened there? Right. Well, one of my goals with uh, the book, Ida Be the Queen, was to humanize my great-grandmother and to illustrate her personality that were in small ways and, and that resonated with me. And one incident that she recounted that um, I found particularly interesting was when she was um, in her late 20s, she was the co-owner of a newspaper, the Memphis Free Speech, and she had to travel in order to um, solicit um, subscriptions for the newspaper. And she uh, stayed at people's homes while she was traveling. And a, a minister, she heard that a minister was making comments that could be construed as negative towards her. And she confronted him and demanded an apology and even wrote the apology for him to say, in public um, to his congregation. I thought that was fabulous. When I, I said, you go, girl, I was like, she wrote the goddamn letter. I said, that is amazing. Um, and she even had an earlier incident which, when she went to get money for her um, from a man, uh, I think it was a doctor or someone of, from her father had left her money um, with this guy. And, you know, today women still have to deal with this issue of, you know, if you go to some guy's house, and I say some guy, it could be a doctor, it could be a friend of a friend, it, it, but th this, there's this air, oh, what, what do you guys do? You know, what happened? Women are still dealing with this um, issue of not, be, not being able to be alone with a man um, without gossip happening. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's so happening. Do you see that or, or you don't see that? Yeah, I do. And, and like I said, that was one of my goals with the book was to um, show how much um, attention my great-grandmother had to, um, you know, focus on in order to remain, to keep her reputation um, as stellar as possible because she was a single woman, she was a business owner, um, and she was living during very dangerous times. And so she had to be very vigilant about her reputation, about what people were saying about her in order to remain safe and to remain credible um, when it came to her business. Um, and so she, uh, I did uh, include two incidents that she mentioned where she had to um, be very careful about how she was perceived. Um, and that one incident that you mentioned was when she was 16 years old after her parents, both of her parents died, and she was uh, going to see the doctor who took care of her father who who was given some money by her by the, the nurse of the of It's a complicated story, but he had the money from her father, mm -hmm. and um, only for her to uh, have to deal with 
rumors um, that that made it her shed her in a in a negative light. Um, so you know, I, I wanted people to to understand that she she dealt with a lot of um, you know challenges, and she tried to she was navigating um, a society um, you know that that viewed women in a certain way, and she was also um, trying to you know make sure she was taking care of herself and her siblings. Um, so she she it was a lot for a 16 year old. <laughs> Yeah, she was very brave um, because she also seemed to have traveled a lot. From, from my perspective as a woman at that time, she, she traveled around a lot and fighting injustices, and she did that really through her writing. And she was also this entrepreneur, which that I did not know either, that she owned parts of these different newspapers. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. Well, that's one thing I hope people really get from the book is that she did have a business um, acumen. And most people don't think of Ida B. Wells as a businesswoman, um, but I do, uh, because she not only was a writer who exposed lynching as a form of domestic terrorism, um, she countered false narratives by exposing the truth about what was happening regarding lynching. Um, but in addition to that, she did co-own several newspapers, um, which gave her, you know, control over the newspaper, which I think, uh, you know, had, was a great um, contributor to her being able to speak her truth. Yeah, and she, like, I like what you do. You try to um, have these in-between chapters or you write these sidebar notes about some other things that are happening at the same time or things that are happening uh, in the future that were impacted by her. Um, but one of the things, again, learning new things is great because, you know, other books have been written about her. She was being tracked by the FBI. Tell the audience about this whole situation with the FBI. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, so the, what, the way I constructed the book was not in a nonlinear way um, and in order to sort of mimic how I learned about her because I didn't learn about my great-grandmother from birth to death in, in chronological order. I yeah. learned about it like sprinkling, you know, throughout my, my life, just kind of hearing stories about her. Mm -hmm. And one of the stories that that I particularly found fascinating was not only that she was tracked by the FBI, which is amazing, amazing, but how she reacted to to yes. the agents that came to visit her um, was just, um, I just felt myself cheering, you know, when I read about it because she was not intimidated at all. Um, she was visited because they, <clears throat> because she had created some buttons um, in honor of uh, soldiers who were killed, black soldiers who were killed in, um, outside of Houston mm -hmm. um, as a result of them defending themselves uh, against um, aggression. But then everything was turned around and they were considered the aggressors. And um, yeah. so she found that to be just unconscionable that the United States government would kill its own soldiers. And so she created buttons. Um, to memorialize them, and the FBI visited her, basically um, threatening her with treason for criticizing the government. Yep. I mean, and that's happened to so many African Americans who stood up for things. I mean, Paul Robeson, I remember. Uh, one of the other things that when, uh, in the book you talk about her passport being taken. Can you tell them where she was trying to go when her passport was taken away, or, or not even given, I should say? Right. It was denied. Um she after world war one ended 
there was a peace conference on, in, outside of Paris that was organized in order to um, for different nations to get together to sort of talk about how to avoid, um, you know, future uh, issues that would cause another world war and how to solve yeah. some of the problems that did cause it. And so my great-grandmother, along with Marcus Garvey and uh, Madam C.J. Walker and William Monroe Trotter, William uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, there were several black leaders um, that were – um, consider to go over there to basically talk about racism and how that is an issue and how there mm-hmm. needs to be, you know, uh, resolution yep. when it comes to this kind of racial violence and um, strife. And, um, yeah, so so her, the United States government denied her a passport uh, because she was considered dangerous and, and uh, militant and radical. And um, so she unfortunately was not able to go. It's it's just amazing. You always wonder, I mean, for me, I always wonder, is today better than yesterday, you know, in terms of African-Americans and our standing? And we see in in recent history, in the last year or two, I mean, just like, and and, and excuse this phrase, but I was so upset. I felt like it was pick and nigger season. Because every time I turned around on the TV, you know, a young black person or a black person was being gunned down or killed in some way. I mean, even Lynch, there was a guy hung in front of a building, I forgot where that was, uh, in front of one of the state buildings, and they said, oh, he committed suicide and did it himself. And I was like, well, how the hell did he get up there? Like, you know, and there was no bench or anything. So, um, you know, do you feel that things are better now than they were? I think they're they're just different. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that we're dealing with some of the same challenges as far as, um, you know, I really think what my great-grandmother was fighting for, in a nutshell, was first-class citizenship, Um, you know, in every respect, as far as having, you know, equal justice under the law, having the right to vote, having, you know, the right to be paid equally, you know, have equality when it comes to housing and education and um, you know, so many things that, that would, that are about first class citizenship, um, yes. and just equality. And so when it, if you think about it like that, the fact that we are still fighting and we still have so many racially based disparities, um, on so many metrics, um, in that way things, um, there, there are a lot of similarities as far as what we are, our generation or people today, are fighting for, you know, compared to or, you know, um, what my great-grandmother's generation were fighting for. I mean, there are some, you know, improvements. Obviously, women have the right to vote now. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's a huge, you know, advancement from her time when she was 58 years old before the 19th Amendment was passed. And she died at age 68. So really, you know, the great majority of her adult life, she did not have the right to vote. Um, You know, but now we're dealing with sort of this, you know, uh, pushback um, and rollback of voting rights. So we're kind of still fighting um, to maintain, you know, some of the progress that was made. Um, You know, but when it comes to so many metrics, when it, you know, like I said, access to health care, access to healthy food, um, you know, uh, environmental justice, um, you know, education, I mean, just on and on down the line, you know, African-Americans um, are, have, have the most struggles when it comes to, you know, being on par 
with, um, you know, with other people in this country. Yeah. Well, she also thought um, an interesting story about uh, the Southwestern Railroad Company. You want to tell the audience about how she was battling with them? Right. Well, in the early 1880s, uh, my great-grandmother, Ida B. Wallace, was living in Memphis, and she originally was teaching in Woodstock, and she, um, and so she had to commute to go to, to school, um, to work. And um, the, there was a, a law passed that segregated uh, public transportation, and she ignored that law and rode the train like she did every day. Um, and so she was asked to leave the lady's car to go to the colored car, which doubled as a smoking car. She refused and um, was physically assaulted by three different men um, who worked for the railroad. Mm. Um, and, um, and then she had another incident a year later, and she decided to sue the railroad for, on the basis that the cars were separate and unequal. Right. Um, she initially won. Um, but then the railroad appealed the case all the way to the Tennessee Supreme Court, and then it was reversed two and a half years later. I was so mad. I was so mad because I was so happy. I was like, yes, she got, she won. And then I'm reading, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, my God, I was so mad when I read that part. You know, you, you thought she had a great win, but I still feel she had a win because I think she showed her not she was not afraid to go against them and that, they were put on notice, if you will, in a sense. Uh, so, I, so it's still a win for me. I still feel for that time period, um, you know, she had a bit of a win. Um, but, you know, one of the things also that's interesting is, um, you know, she, she later in life she got married and, and she had four kids. Um, and she was ba- balancing all these activities, you know, um, and, and that's something that women do today. You know, they have to go to work. They still have to deal with child care and daycare, you know, getting them to daycare. Women in general, this is a generalized statement, are still holding many of the um, parenting duties, if you will, you know, in in our society. Um, I I have a daughter, um, and I I know I've dragged her many places when she was younger. I mean, she's 27 now, but, um, you know, I don't know. Do you have kids, Michelle? I do not have children, but I have several books that I consider my children. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, but you see people, you see, I don't know, do you see that women are balancing uh, or do you feel like the the male um, men have become more, I think they've become more uh, participatory, I feel. Um, I, I, I don't know. What do you think? What I've seen among my friends is, every couple manages things differently. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I have some friends where the men are the primary caregivers and the woman is the primary breadwinner Mm -hmm. um, and and, um, all different, you know, iterations in between. And sometimes I've seen, you know, where it kind of, kind of alternates um, by, you know, year, maybe for five years, you know, the woman is the primary caregiver and then flip it around and, so, and then, I mean, there's some people who have other family members, grandparents, you know, aunts, uncles, cousins, you know, mm-hmm. that also pitch in. And, and so there is the village, you know, aspect of raising children also. Yeah. I mean, she had to leave the South, though, because, um, I mean, basically she would have been killed. So, um, you know, that was an issue also. So she left people maybe that she was familiar 
you know, with maybe trusted and things of that nature. I I love the fact that she was, even though she couldn't go to Paris, um, you did mention a couple of times she went to the UK. And um, that's also amazing because I, in general, when you think of African-Americans of that time period, um, the idea of leaving the country, being able to leave the country, you know, we we couldn't walk around in the country free, so to speak, because we'd be harassed. But we could actually leave the country on a plane was, you know, was was just like an amazing um, eye I know that that was mentioned in the book. Uh, I mean, mainly her writings were fighting against lynching, and it became very personal for her because some of her friends in Memphis got lynched. Do you want to talk to the audience about who those friends were and, and how that happened? Right. Well, I would just want to say that, I mean, she did go to England um, twice, and um, at that time she traveled by ship, and so it took uh, quite a while, I think at least 10 days for her Mm. to travel by ship. I'm not sure um, in 1893 if, uh, if planes were available. I'm but, sorry. Um, yeah, I should have said shit. <laughs> yeah, but still, the idea, just the, just the idea of being able to leave and come back is, is to me, for right? Americans, yeah, exactly. And 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 that's one thing that I hope people get from the book is the um, the you know the the reality that. Um, there were people who traveled, black people traveled, um, you know, as early as the 1830s and 40s, there was a community in England that were like abolitionists and um, mm-hmm. Frederick Douglass and several other leaders um, before Ida, you know, traveled over there. And she, when she was there, she actually met the woman who bought Frederick Douglass's freedom. Um, and so there, there were, there was a lot of, um, collaboration between American abolitionists and and people in England who were, um, you know, also had the same sort of sensibility. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I, I hope people really, you know, we need to learn more about this international um, kind of coalition. Um, But as far as her friends traveling, uh, you know, getting lynched, she was, I was living in Memphis in, um, Three of her friends owned a grocery store, and they um, were basically killed for being successful because their grocery store was doing very well, and it rivaled a white-owned grocery store, and that owner decided to get rid of the competition and basically uh, create a, a situation where the uh, black men were had to defend themselves against intruders in, in their store, and so then they were considered the aggressors. And um, and arrested and ultimately lynched. And so that changed the entire trajectory of my great-grandmother's life because she knew they were innocent and was so outraged by, you know, this huge violation of, um, you know, of of, uh, just, I mean, outright murdering somebody just because they were successful. Um, And so she wanted people to know that leaders of the communities were being um, murdered and um and 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 that lynching was being used as a form of domestic terrorism it was not about punishing people for a crime it was about keeping the black community terrorized and oppressed yeah i mean one of the comments in the book is like is it racism or is it economics and i I believe that it's a combination and we see that today because the brown or the other people are taking away our jobs 
you know, it's still also the brown people, black people, maybe, you know, um, diluting our, our race, you know, by mixing with um, white men or women. So even today, that issue is there. And then in terms of, like, the, back to the economic thing, um, wow, there's just so many things. We, we, can, we can't fill the whole, we can't um, talk about everything, but I just thought about redlining, not being able to have homes, you know, generational wealth, um, not being able to get loans from banks, even though soldiers went overseas and, and, and um, served or, you know, had good credit, if you will, but they still weren't given loans. I mean, if people could go to several banks. So I think it's a combination of not just the pure, like, racism and, and the color issue, but I think it's also economics and resources. You know, it's like I'm losing resources if you get some. If you get some, then somehow I'm losing, which is not necessarily the case. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's just my little two cents there. <laughs> um, so, but, yeah, I mean, the, well, I just wanted to really quickly say that, I mean, I think that there's a pattern, and I um, included a, a timeline of 400 years of our country's history um, to because I, I've seen a pattern of uh, backlash, against mm-hmm. black progress. Mm-hmm. So every time that, that there has been some kind of um, progress when it comes to our, our rights or our opportunities, then somehow there's a backlash and there's this anger and, you know, efforts to, um, you know, to, to reverse things back to, quote, the good old days, right. um, you know. And, and so what's happening right now in 2021 is, reminiscent of the same pattern, you know, yep. um, I started to notice almost a 30 to 40 year pattern of, of that um, dynamic. Wow. I mean, I, I, I can see that. I mean, this voting suppression of uh, around happening around the com- country and people are trying to deny it. And it, like I read something about you can't bring water to somebody if they're waiting in the line. Um it's it, it, it's just sometimes I just like want to laugh, you know, at at some of these things that people are trying. And do you think somebody's not going to notice? You think nobody's going to, you know, question, you know, your your actions or your laws that you're creating? Um, it, 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 yeah, sometimes yeah. I just want to laugh mm-hmm. about it. <laughs> right. And well, the difference between now and during my great grandmother's time is that race is not being explicitly used as the as the um, barriers you know i mean yeah. during their during her time it was like black people cannot you know do this this mm-hmm. this, this this right, right now right. it's like okay well people um can't you know uh register during uh they can't vote on sundays and they can't um you know vote after 5 p.m and yeah. all of these different things but it just sort of happens to affect black people the most <laughs> it just happens to yeah and you know, you know, other countries they allow them to take the day off, like it's a holiday to vote, so that everybody can mm-hmm. have a chance to, to vote. Right. I was like, I remember I found that out, and I was like, that makes that way everybody has an opportunity because, you know, go back to economics. If you have an hourly job, if you're working at McDonald's or you're working at a pizza place, and you take a couple hours off, you may not be able to afford that to go vote, even though the thing may be open at 7:30 in the morning. Um, you know, you, you may not be able to get there, you know, and um, that we also, you know, talk about um, protesting and, and, and the ability to protest. She was able to participate in the, the suffragette um, uh, 
parade, if you will. And um, talk to them about that because uh, it was an interesting story about where they expected her to be, but then where she ended up. <laughs> right. Well, my great grandmother Ida B. Wells was involved in the suffrage movement, and she uh, founded the Alpha Suffrage Club in Chicago, which was the first uh, black um, uh, suffrage club in, in the state of Illinois. And she went to Washington D.C to represent the suffrage club, but she traveled with the Illinois delegation, which was predominantly white. The, once they got there, the um, organizers asked the black women to march in the back of the parade. So it wasn't just her, it was like all black women mm-hmm. um, march in the back of the parade. And long story short, she agreed, um, she pretended to agree, but then on the day of the parade, nobody could find her and she, uh, come to find out, she walked alongside of the parade and then sort of jumped out of the crowd and inserted herself into the Illinois delegation. So she um, segregated, I mean, desegregated the parade. <laughs> I, I, that was another great, I was like, yes, you know, like while you're reading. You know, I love books because you just, um, it can take you so many places. It's so important to have books in people's lives, and, and then it also enlightens them about what's happening in the world or what has happened, you know. Um, and it gives you a little, like, jolt. Of, um, for me, like, books in terms of, like, historical activists, it, it gives me this, like, happiness jolt, like, okay, you know what, they were going through that, they were doing this, you know, right now I can do this. You know, it, it just gives gives you a little hope in a sense um, because things have changed in, in many ways. Um, now, what are you coming? What are you planning on doing next? What are, what are you writing? Going to be writing more children's books, more books about Ida? What's happening uh, in the future for you? Yes, well, I actually have two uh, children's picture books um, coming out next year. Um, and I'm working on a couple of uh, public history projects um, that are around Ida. Um, so those are some things that are coming up in the next year. Wow. So um, is this, um, do you always want to write children's books or do you see other things like other types of books? And if so what other book, what other type of book would you write? Well, I've edited several adult books. Um, one is an academic book about Michelle Obama, um, mm-hmm. but I've also um, edited several collections um, and uh, and uh, re- I edited two books of my great-grandmother's original writing. So I've edited several books, um, and then I'm writing two children's books, and then this book, Ida Be the Queen, I think is for multi-generational use. Yeah, I think any adult could read it because I'm going to go, I learned some stuff about her, but I think um, it would be great um, in, in a school, you know, curriculum, um, a history curriculum um, in, in like elementary school or something, high school. So, I mean, is that what you saw for it? Um, did you see it being used like that? Oh, yeah, that would be great. <laughs> I, think, I, I think that, I mean, because I incorporated uh, current people, and movements and organizations, um, with the idea that it can it can spark discussion and um, help younger people particularly see the the connection between the present and the past, 
um, and and also uh, you know get ideas on how they can get involved in activism in simple ways, even when it comes to just creating a button, you know, mm-hmm. as a form of protest, um, right, all the way right. to you know organizing a national organization. Um, so my great grandmother worked in so many different ways, and she used so many different tactics. That um, my hope is that people will you know, get ideas and, and be inspired and, you know, and see parts of themselves in her and, um, and and get ideas on what they can do to make an impact as well. So, um, you know, that, that was part of the reason why I structured the book the way that I did, um, so that it, it does um, give perspective of how my great-grandmother fit into her lifespan from the Civil War to the Great Depression. But then also how people are carrying on her legacy after she, 90 years after she's, you know, been gone. But then she was influenced by things that, you know, that happened before her. So, um, you know, it's all connected and it's part of a continuum. Definitely, definitely. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show this morning. Um, I think it's a great book that you've written. I look forward to seeing some other books from you and maybe you can come back on the show (laughs) and talk about those books. Um, But this one here, I'm going to be giving away some copies of the book. So um, I want to encourage people to follow me on social media. Tell people, where are you on social media? Uh, You're on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Michelle. What's your hook or handle? Um, At Michelle Duster. (laughs) There you go. Very easy. Okay. (laughs) Very good. Very good. So um, thank you again. I hope you have a great weekend and uh, stay COVID free. Okay. Oh yeah. You too. Thank you so much, Joy. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you everybody for tuning into the show. I just got off the phone with author Michelle Duster about her book, Ida Be the Queen. I'm going to be giving away some copies of that book. So you want to follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Also, you can email me, Saturdays with Joy Keys, at hotmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Uh, please uh, be safe, and even though you know we have this vaccine out there, you still got to wash your hands and wear your mask. Keep that six feet apart. Um, I know they're saying people that have the vaccine can now socialize with other people that have the vaccine but they still say wear your mask. So just remember that um, when you're socializing. All right, you guys have a great weekend, and I will talk to you later. Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke.